Part two of Hindle Wakes by Stanley Horton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Act one, scene one. The scene is triangular, representing a corner of the living room kitchen of number hundred and thirty seven Burnley Road, Hindle, a house rented at about seven shillings six pence a week. In the left hand wall, low down, there is a door leading to the scullery. In the same wall, but further away from the spectator, is a window looking on to the backyard. A dresser stands in front of the window. About halfway up the right-hand wall is the door leading to the hall or passage. Nearer, against the same wall, a high cupboard for china and crockery. The fireplace is not visible, being in one of the walls not represented. However, down in the left corner of the stage is an armchair, which stands by the hearth. In the middle of a room is a square table, with chairs on each side. The room is cheerful and comfortable. It is nine o'clock on a warm August evening. Through the window can be seen the darkening sky, as the blind is not drawn. Against the sky an outline of rooftops and mill chimneys. The only light is the dim twilight from the open window. Thunder is in the air. When the curtain rises, Christopher Hawthorne, a decent, white-bearded man of nearly sixty, is sitting in the armchair smoking a pipe. Mrs. Hawthorne, a keen, sharp-faced woman of fifty-five, is standing gazing out of the window. There is a flash of lightning and a rumble of thunder far away. It's passing over. There'll be no rain. Aye, we could do with some rain. There is a flash of lightning. Pull down the blind and light the gas. What for? It's more cosy-like with the gas. You're not afraid of the lightning. I want to look at that railway guide. What's the good? We've looked at it twice already. There's no train from Blackpool till five past ten, and it's only just on nine now. Happen we've made a mistake. Happen we've not. Besides, what's the good of a railway guide? You know trains run as they like on bank holiday. Aye, perhaps you're right. You don't think she'll come round by Manchester? What would she be doing coming round by Manchester? You can get that road from Blackpool. Yes, if she's coming from Blackpool. Have you thought she may not come at all? What do you take me for? You never hinted. No use putting them sort of ideas into your head. Another flash and a peal of thunder. Well, well, those are lucky who haven't to travel at all on bank holiday. Unless they've got a motor car, like Nat Jeffcoat's lad. Nay, he's not got one. What? Why, I saw him with me own eyes setting out in it last Saturday week, after the mill shut. Aye, he's gone off these weeks with his pal George Ramsbottom. A couple of thick beggars, those two. Then what do you mean telling me he's not got a motor-car? I said he hadn't got one of his own. It's his father's. You don't catch Nat Jeffcoat parting without before his time. That's how he holds his lad in check, as you might say. Alan Jeffcoat's seldom short of cash. He spends plenty. Aye, Nat gives him what he asks for, and doesn't want to know how he spends it either. But he's got to ask for it first. Nat can stop supplies any time if he's a mind. That's likely, isn't it? Queer things have happened. You don't know Nat like I do. He's a bad one to get across with. Another flash and gentle peal. 
Mrs. Hawthorne gets up. I'll light the gas. Mrs. Hawthorne pulls down the blind and lights the gas. When I met Nat this morning, he told me that Alan had telegraphed from Landudno on Saturday, asking for twenty pounds. From Landudno? Aye, reckon he's been stopping there, run short of brass. And did he send it? Of course he sent it. <laughs> Nat doesn't stint the lad. Eh, but he can get through it, though. Look here, you. What are you going to say to Fanny when she comes? Ask her where she's been. Ask her where she's been? Of course we'll do that. But suppose she won't tell us. She's always been a good girl. She's always gone her own road. Suppose she tells us to mind our own business. I reckon it is my business to know what she's been up to. Don't you forget it. And don't let her forget it either. If you do... I promise you I won't. All right. Where's that postcard? Little good take and eat of that. Christopher rises and gets a picture postcard from the dresser. Shall be home before late on Monday. Lovely weather. Looking at the picture. North Pier, Blackpool. Very like, too. Let's have a look. When was it posted? It's dated Sunday. That's now to go by. Anyone can put the wrong date. What's the postmark? She scrutinises it. August 5th. Summit PM. I can't make out the time. August 5th. That was yesterday, all right. There'd only be one post on Sunday. Then she was in Blackpool up to yesterday, that's certain. Aye. Well, it's a mystery. Christopher, shaking his head. A summit worse. Eh? You don't think that, eh? I don't know what to think. Nor me neither. They sit silent for a time. There is a rumble of thunder, far away. After it has died away, a knock is heard at the front door. They turn and look at each other. Mrs. Hawthorne rises and goes out in silence. In a few moments Fanny Hawthorne comes in, followed by Mrs. Hawthorne. Fanny is a sturdy, determined, dark little girl, with thick lips, a broad, short nose, and big black eyes. She is dressed rather smartly, but not very tastefully. She stands by the table, unpinning her hat and talking cheerfully. Mrs. Hawthorne stands by the door, and Christopher remains in his chair. Both look at Fanny queerly. Well, you didn't expect me as soon as this, I'll bet. I came round by Manchester. They said the trains would run better that way tonight. Bank holiday, you know. I always think they let the Manchester train through before any of the others, don't you? We didn't see how you were to get here till past ten if you came direct. We've been looking up in the guide. No, I wasn't for coming direct at any price. Mary wanted to. Mary? Christopher is about to rise in astonishment, but Mrs. Hawthorne makes signs to him behind Fanny's back. Oh, so Mary Hollins wanted to come back the other way, did she? Yes, but I wasn't having any. They said the Manchester trains would be... Oh, I've told you that already. So you've had a good time, Fanny? Rather, a fair treat. What do you think? Was Mary Hollins with you all the time? Of course she was. Fanny steals a puzzled glance at Mrs. Hawthorne. And she came back with you tonight? Yes. And where's she gone now? She's gone home, of course. Where else should she go? 
you're telling lies my girl what father that's not the truth you've just been saying what's not the truth you didn't spend the weekend in blackpool with mary hollins who says i didn't i say so why do you think i didn't father well did you yes i did christopher turns helplessly to his wife all right chris wait a minute look here fanny it's no use trying to make us believe you've been away with mary what i can bring you any number of folk out of indloose or as in blackpool last week last week happen not this weekend yes bring them then how can i bring them to-night then most of em not come back yet tell us who to ask then ask polly burtwistle or ethel slater yes after you've got at em and given em a hint what to say of course if you'll believe that it's no use asking mary you'd only say she was telling lies as well will you go round and see mary no fanny it's no use seeing mary you may as well own up and tell us where you've been i've been to blackpool with mary hollins you've not you weren't there this weekend why i sent you a picture postcard on sunday yes we got that who posted it i posted it myself at the pillar box on the central pier there is a pause they do not believe her i tell you i've been all weekend at blackpool with mary hollins no you've not well that's settled then there's no need to talk about it any more a pause fanny nervously twist her handkerchief look here who's been saying i didn't we know you didn't but you can't know as certain as there's a god in heaven we know it well that's not so certain after all fanny take heed what you're saying why can't you speak out what do you know tell me that it's not for us to tell you anything it's for you to tell us where you've been i've told you they do not speak fanny rises quickly where are you going are you trying to hinder me from going out when i please now i'm going to see mary hollins what for to fetch her here you shall see her whether you like it or not fanny i've already seen mary hollins fanny turns and stares at him in surprise when this morning she was at blackpool this morning so was i what were you doing there christopher nodding slowly i went there with jim hollins we went on purpose to see mary so it's mary as has given me away is it yes you might say so i'll talk to her it wasn't her fault she couldn't help it now will you tell us where you've been no i won't i'll see mary first what does she say to you when i told thee i went with jim hollins to blackpool i didn't tell thee quite everything lass mary hollins was drowned yesterday afternoon what she stares at christopher in horror it was one of them sailing boats run down by an excursion steamer there was over twenty people on board seven of them was drowned oh my poor mary fanny sinks down into her chair and stares dully at christopher 
You didn't know that. Fanny, shaking her head. No, no. She buries her head in her arms on the table and begins to sob. <laughs> now then, Fanny. She is about to resume her inquisition. Hold on, mother. Wait a bit. Give her a chance. Mrs. Hawthorne waving him aside. Now then, Fanny, you see you've been telling lies all the time. <laughs> Listen to me. You weren't at Blackpool this weekend. Poor, poor Mary. You weren't at Blackpool this weekend. <laughs> Were you? No. She shakes her head without raising it. Where were you? Shan't tell you. You went away for the weekend. Did you go alone? You didn't go alone, of course. Who did you go with? Leave me alone, mother. Who did you go with? Did you go with a fella? Fanny stops sobbing. She raises her head the tiniest bit so that she can see her mother without seeming to do so. Her eyes are just visible above her arm. Mrs. Hawthorne marks the movement, nevertheless. Mrs. Hawthorne, nodding. Yeah, you went with a chap. Fanny, quickly dropping her head again. No, I didn't. You little liar. You did. You know you did. Who was he? Mrs. Hawthorne seizes Fanny by the shoulder and shakes her in exasperation. <laughs> Will you tell us who he was? No, I won't. This is what happens to many a lass, but I never thought to have it happen to a lass of mine. Why didn't you get wed if you were so curious? There's plenty would have had you. Chance is a fine thing. Happen I wouldn't have had then. Happen you'll be sorry for it before long. There's not so many will have you now if this gets about. He ought to wed her. Of course he ought to wed her, and shall too, or I'll know the reason why. Come now, who's the chap? shan't tell you look here she places her hand on fanny's arm fanny turns round fiercely and flings it off leave me alone can't you you ought to be thankful he did take me away it saved my life anyhow how'd you make that out i'd have been drowned with mary if i hadn't gone to landudno landudno did you say she stops short why mother that's be quiet can't you she reflects for a moment, and then sits down at the other side of the table, opposite Fanny. When you were in Landudno, did you happen to run across Alan Jeffcourt? Fanny looks up, and they stare hard at each other. How did you know? Mrs. Hawthorne, smiling grimly. I didn't. You've just told me. Oh. She buries her head and sobs. <laughs> well, what do you think of her now? Nat Jeffcourt's lad. Aye, Nat Jeffcourt's lad. But what does that matter? If it hadn't been him, it would have been some other lad. Nat and me were lads together. We were pals. Well, now the girl and Nat's lads are pals. Pull yourself together, man. What are they going to do about it? I don't know rightly. Aren't you going to give her a talking to? What's the good? What's the good? Well, I like that. My father would have got a stick to me. She turns to Fanny. Did he promise to wed you? No. 
why not never asked him you little fool have you no common sense at all what did you do it for if you didn't make him promise to wed you do you hear me what made you do it <laughs> let her be mother she's turned stupid when did you go did you go in his motor car where did you stay there is no answer so she shakes fanny will you take heed of what i'm saying haven't you got a tongue in your head tell us exactly what took place i won't tell you anything more we'll see about that christopher rising that's enough mother we'll leave her alone to-night he touches fanny on the shoulder now then lass no one's going to harm thee stop that crying thou better get upstairs to bed happen thou's fagged out you are soft you're never going to let her off so easy there's plenty of time to tackle her in the morning come lass fanny rises and stands by the table wiping her eyes get to bed and have some sleep if thou can without a word fanny slowly goes to the door and out of the room she does not look at either of them now then what's to be done ay that's it you'll have to waken up a bit if we're to make the most of this i can tell you what's the first job you'll have to go and see nathaniel jeffcourt i'll see him at the mill to-morrow to-morrow you'll go and see him to-night go up to the house at bank top if alan's come home with fanny he'll be there as well and you can kill two birds with one stone it's a nasty job it's got to be done and the sooner the better how would it be if i come with you nay i'll go alone i'm afraid you'll be too soft it's a fine chance and don't you forget it a fine chance to get her wed thou great stupid we're not going to be content with less we'll show them up if they turn nasty he ought to wed her i don't know what that'll say look here if you're not going to stand out for your rights i'll come myself i'm not afraid in that jeffcourt not if he owned twenty mills like daisy bank i'm not afraid of him neither though he's a bad man to tackle he rises where's me hat mrs hawthorne gives him his hat and stick and he goes to the door i say i wonder if she's done this on purpose after all plenty of girls have made good matches that way she said they never mentioned marriage you heard her well he mightn't a gone with her if she had happen she's cleverer than we think she always was a deep one that's how bamber's lass got all the young greenwood but there was a he couldn't help it so well yes she reflects ah well you never know what may happen christopher goes out followed by mrs hawthorne as the curtain falls scene two the breakfast-room at nathaniel jeffcote's house bank-top hindle vale is almost vast for the house is one of those great old-fashioned places standing in ample grounds that are to be found on the outskirts of the smaller lancashire manufacturing towns they are inhabited by wealthy manufacturers who have resisted the temptation to live at st aunt's on the sea or blackpool 
in the wall facing the spectator is the door from the hall which when the door is open can be seen distinctly a big square place the fireplace is in the right-hand wall and a bow window in the left-hand one the furniture is solid and costly but the room is comfortable and looks as if it is intended to be lived in a table stands in the middle a sideboard near the door armchairs near the hearth whilst other chairs and furniture including a bookcase filled with standard works complete the rather ponderous interior the jeffcoats use the breakfast room for all meals except ceremonious ones when the dining room is requisitioned and an elaborate dinner is substituted for the high tea which nathaniel persists in regarding as an essential of comfort and homeliness it is about ten thirty on the same bank holiday evening the room is well lighted by gas not electricity but of course there is no fire nathaniel jeffcoat and his wife are sitting alone in the room he is a tall thin gaunt withered domineering man of sixty when excited or angry he drops into dialect but otherwise his speech though flat is fairly accurate mrs jeffcoat has even more fully adapted herself to the responsibilities and duties imposed by the possession of wealth she is a plump mild and good-natured woman she sits under a chandelier embroidering whilst her husband sits in an armchair by the empty hearth working calculations in a small shiny black notebook which he carries about with him everywhere in a side pocket i asked mrs plews to let me have a look through hinder lodge to-day jeffcoat looking up eh what's that mrs plews is leaving hinder lodge at christmas what of it i was thinking it would do very well for alan when he gets married is alan talking about getting married beatrice was mentioning it last week how long have they been engaged a year eleven months i remember it was on september the fifth that it happened how on earth can you remember that because september the fifth is your birthday is it he grunts oh, well eleven months isn't so long after all let em wait a bit longer i thought we might be speaking for the lodge what do they want with a house like the lodge isn't there plenty of room here we've got four living rooms and fourteen bedrooms in this house and there's never more than three of them going at the same time really nat they'll want a house of their own no matter how many bedrooms we've got empty and it's only natural there's no hurry as far as i can see alan won't be twenty-five till next march will he you were only twenty-two when you married me i didn't marry a girl who'd been brought up like beatrice farrar i married a girl who could help me to make money beatrice won't do that she'll help to spend it likely well you'll have it to spend what's money for money's power that's why i like money not for what it can buy all the same you've always done yourself pretty well nat because it pays in the long run and it's an outward sign why did i buy a motor-car not because i wanted to go motoring i hate it i bought it so that people could see alan driving about in it and say there's jeffcoat's lad in his new car it cost five hundred quid tim farrow was so keen on getting his knighthood for the same reason every one knows that him and me started life in a weaving shed that's why we like to have something to show em how well we've done that's why we put some of our brass into houses and motors and knighthoods and fancy articles of the kind i've put a deal of brass into our alan and tim farrow's put a deal into his beatrice with just the same object in view there is a short pause 
Jeffcoat goes on with his reckoning, and Mrs. Jeffcoat with her sewing. Then she speaks quietly. I was wondering what you intend to do for Alan when he gets married. Do for him? What do you mean? He doesn't get a regular salary, does he? Has Alan been putting you up to talk to me about this? Well, Nat, if he has... Why can't he talk to me himself? You're not such a good one to tackle. I dare say you thought I should do it better than he would. I don't keep him short, do I? No, but Sir Timothy will expect him to show something more definite before the wedding. Tim Farrar doesn't need to be afraid. I hope he'll leave his lass as much as I shall leave Alan. That lad'll be the richest man in Hindle some day. I dare say some day. That's not much good to set up house on. Why don't you take him into partnership? Partnership? You always say he works hard enough. Well enough. I suppose it comes to this. You don't want to take him into partnership because it would mean parting with some of that power you're so fond of. He mightn't work so well if he was his own master. But if you gave him a junior partnership, he wouldn't be his own master. You'd see to that. Jeffcote, jocularly dropping into dialect. Eh, hey, lass, thou'd better come and manage mill thyself. I shouldn't make such a bad job of it neither. Remember that if you take him in, you'll have less work to do yourself. He'll share the responsibility. Hold on a bit. The old cock's not done with yet. If Beatrice starts talking about the date... Oh, if you'll stop your worriting, I dare say I'll take the lad into partnership on his wedding day. Can I tell Sir Timothy that? If you like. I told him myself six months ago. You are a caution, Nat. Indeed you are. Why couldn't you tell me so at once instead of making a fool of me like this? I like to hear thee talking, lass. Having brought off this characteristic stroke of humour, Jeffcoat resumes his work. The door opens and Ada comes in. If you please, sir, there's someone to see you. Jeffcoat, absorbed. Eh? Who is it, Ada? His name's Hawthorne, ma'am. It'll be Christopher Hawthorne, Nat. What does he want, coming so late as this? Fetch him in here. Ada goes out. Can't be out wrong at the mill, seeing it's bank holiday. Ada shows in Christopher, who stands near the door. Good evening, Mr. Hawthorne. Good evening, Mrs. Jeffcoat. Jeffcoat, rising. Well, Chris. Well, Nat. These two old comrades address each other by their first names, although master and man. Sit down. The rain's held off. Aye. Christopher is obviously ill at ease. Where have you been these wakes? Nowhere. What? Stopped at home? Aye, somehow we don't seem quite as keen on Blackpool as we used to be, and the missus was badly last week with her leg, and what with one thing and another, we let it drift this time round. You've not been away either. No, we went away to Norway in June, you know. Aye, so you did. That must be a fine place, from the pictures. Alan is away, though. He's motoring in North Wales. We expect him back tonight. Business is too bad to go away, Chris. I was down in Manchester Tuesday and Friday. It isn't wakes in Manchester, the nose. Anything doing? I landed ten sets of those brown jacquinets on Friday, five for October and five for November. For the forty-four-inch looms? Aye, and hark you, Chris. They're complaining about the tint. Not bright enough, they say, in India. They sent a pattern over this mail. 
You'd better have a look at it tomorrow. We've got to give them what they want, I reckon. I don't think they do know what they want in India, Nat. You're about right there, Chris. A pause. Christopher looks uncomfortably at Mrs. Jeffcote. When are you going to bed, Mother? Any time now. That's right. Just reach me the whisky before you go. Mrs. Jeffcote gets a bottle of whisky, a siphon and glasses from the sideboard cupboard. Are you going to sit up for Alan? Why, hasn't he got his latch key? I expect so. Then I reckon he'll be able to find the keyhole, and if he can't he won't thank me for sitting up to welcome him. You do talk some nonsense, Nat. Good night, Mr. Hawthorne. Christopher, rising. Good night, Mrs. Jeffcott. Mrs. Jeffcote goes out of the room. Have a drink, Chris. No thanks, Nat. Get away. Well, just a small one, then. Jeffcote pours out two drinks. Light your pipe, Chris. Aye, thanks. He does so. It's a long while since we had a quiet chat together. We don't see so much of each other as we did thirty years ago. No, you've other fish to fry, I reckon. I'm always right glad to see you. How long have you been taping for me, Chris? I came to you in ninety-five. I remember because Joe Walmsley's shed was burnt down the same year. Aye, that was during the general election when Tories knocked out Mark Smethurst in Indle. Joe was speaking at one of Mark's meetings when they come and told him his mill was afire. That was the only time I ever saw Joe Walmsley cry. He was fond of them looms, was Joe. You missed your way, Chris, you did indeed, when you wouldn't come in with me and put your savings into Trafalgar Mill. That's what the missus is never tired of telling me. You might have been my partner these fifteen years, instead of only my slasher. You'd never have got on with a partner, Nat. You're too fond of your own way. You're right there. I've been used to it for a good while now. You don't remember Daisy Bank being built, Nat? No, I was living over Blackburn Way then. I was only a lad at the time. I used to come along the river bank on Sundays with the other lads. There were no weaving sheds in Hindle Vale in those days. Nothing but fields all the way to Harwood Bridge. Daisy Bank was the first shed put up outside Hindle proper. They called it Daisy Bank because of the daisies in the meadows. All the side of the brow falling away towards the river was thick with them. Thick dotted it was like the stars in the sky of a clear night. Look here, old lad. Thou didn't come up here at this time of night just to talk about daisies. Eh? You've come up here with a purpose, haven't you? That's so, Nat. I could see that. That's why I sent the missus to bed. I know you of old. What is it that's troubling you? Get it off your chest. It's about my lass. Hello. I'm worried about her. What's she been doing? Getting into trouble. What sort of trouble? Well, thou knows. There's only one sort of trouble. Aye, aye. With a lad. Aye. It's only by chance we found it out. The missus is in a fine way about it, I can tell you. Then it's proper serious, like. They've been away together, these wakes. Oh, she's a cool customer. What art going to do in the matter? That's what I've come up to see thee about. I wasn't for coming tonight, but missus, she was set on it. Quite right, too. I'll help thee any road I can, but you mustn't take it too much to heart. 
it's not the first time a job like this has happened in hindle and it won't be the last that's true but it's poor comfort when it's your own lass that's got into trouble there's many a couple living happy to-day as first come together in that fashion wedded you mean ay wedded of course what else do you think i meant does the lad live in hindle ay he does not know how to break it to jeffcote whose shed does he work at well since you put it that way he works at yours at daisy bank do i know him ay you know him well then by gad i'll have it out with him to-morrow if he doesn't promise to wed thy fanny i'll give him the sack christopher dazed give him the sack and i'll go further if he'll be a decent lad and make it right with her at once i'll see that he's well looked after at the mill we're all pals chris and i can't do no fairer than that can i no now then who's the chap they'll be a bit surprised like i reckon spit it out it's thy lad alan what say that again thy lad alan my lad ay after a short pause jeffcote springs up in a blazing rage damn you chris hawthorne why the devil couldn't you tell me so before i were trying to tell thee nat trying to tell me hasn't thou got a tongue in thy head that thou mun sit there like a bundle of grey cloth while i'm making a fool of myself this road he paces up and down in his agitation here how do you know it's alan who says it's alan fanny fanny eh how do you know she's not lying you can settle it soon enough by asking alan i thought to have found him here to-night he's not come home yet no and a good job for him too wouldn't he fetch fanny back think you would he the dickens he's not altogether without sense you think he'd run her in the car through hindle market-place and up bromley road and set her down at your house for all the folk to see no the bally young fool i'd like to break his silly neck for him and that lass of thine is just as much to blame as he is i've marked her the hot-blooded little wench i can't defend her she's always been a bit of a mystery to her mother and me there's that in her veins as keeps her restless and uneasy if she sees you want her to do one thing she'll go right away and do t'other out of pure cussedness she won't be driven not any road i had a dog just like her once eh hey, old lad it's a good job you never had any boys if you don't know how to manage a girl happen i could have managed lads better i never could clout a girl properly i can manage my lad without clouting always could folk are different you see happen you couldn't have managed our fanny i'd have had a damn good try where is she now at the house she was overdone and i sent her to bed to get her out of range of the missus's tongue she was talking rather bitter like she had a sharp way with her when she was sarah riley had your missus and i reckon it won't have improved with the passing of years i shouldn't wonder if it was your missus who got the truth out of fanny so it was and what did she get out of her let's be knowing just what took place i can tell you now save that they stayed in landudno you'll have to go to your lad for the rest of the story all right i'll see you to-morrow at the mill there's nowt more to be done to-night maybe it's a queer fancy but i'd like to have seen him to-night there's no chance of him coming in shortly think you he may come in the next five minutes 
or he may not come home at all. There's no telling what may happen on bank holiday. Then it's no use me waiting a while. Nay, you can't wait here. I'm going to bed. I'm not going to let this business spoil a night's rest. I'd advise you to look on it in the same light. Ah, Nat, but it's not so hard on you as it is on me. Is it not? How do you know what plans of mine will come to naught through this job? Come on, old lad, thou mun clear out. Thou can do now to ye. Well, I've not said all that my missus told me to say, and I doubt she'll be on my track, but I reckon it's a bit too previous afore we've seen the lad. If your wife wants to say anything to me, she's welcome. You'd better fetch her up here tomorrow night, and bring Fanny along as well. I'll be ready for you by then. Tomorrow night? About nine o'clock. Do you understand? Aye. He goes to the door, and Jeffcoat rises. My wife said, I can guess all that thy wife said. You can tell her this from me. I'll see you treated right. Jay. Jeffcoat opens the door. I can't ask for more than that. I'll see you treated right. They go into the hall out of sight. Ada comes into the room with a tray which she places on the table. The tray holds bread, cheese, butter, a bottle of beer and a tumbler. Jeffcoat, out of sight in the hall. I'm not afraid of thy wife, if you are. The front door bangs. Jeffcoat returns into the room and sees the tray, which he examines irritably. What's this for? Mr. Allen's tray, sir. We always leave it when he's out late. Take it away. Take it away, sir. Yes, do you hear? Take the damn thing away. What about Mr. Allen's supper, sir? Let him do without. Yes, sir. Ada takes the tray out. Jeffcoat watches her, and then goes to the window to see if it is fastened. Mrs. Jeffcoat, mostly undressed and attired in a dressing wrap, appears in the hall. Nat. What do you want? Is anything the matter? Why? I thought I heard you swearing, that's all. Happen I was. You've not quarrelled with Christopher Hawthorne? No, with the best of friends. You only wanted my opinion about summat. What had you got to swear about, then? I was giving him my opinion. Well, but... That's enough. Get along to bed with you. Maybe I'll tell you all about it tomorrow. Maybe I won't. Well, I'm glad it's no worse. I thought you were coming to blows. Mrs. Jeffcoat goes out and upstairs. Jeffcoat sees the two glasses of whisky and soda, which neither of the men has remembered to touch. He takes his own and drinks it. Ada appears. Please, sir, do you want anything else? No, get to bed. She is going. Have the other girls gone upstairs yet? Yes, sir. And you fastened the back door? Yes, sir. Good night. Good night, sir. Ada goes upstairs. Jeffcoat slowly drinks the second glass of whiskey and soda. He puts both the empty glasses on the sideboard and looks round the room. He turns out all the gases except one, which he leaves very low. He goes out into the hall, leaving the breakfast-room door open, and is seen to go out of sight to the front door, as if to assure himself that it is on the latch. Then he turns the hall gas very low indeed, and goes upstairs. The curtain falls. Scene 3 The curtain rises again immediately. The scene is the same room about two hours later, that is to say, at about one o'clock in the morning. 
everything looks just the same. At first there is silence. Then is heard the scratching noise of a latch-key being inserted into the front door. The process takes some time. At last the door is heard to open, and someone stumbles in, making rather too much noise. The door is closed very quietly. A match is struck in the hall, out of sight. It goes out at once. Then a figure is dimly seen to appear in the doorway of the breakfast-room, lean against the jam and look around. It is Alan Jeffcoat, who, if he could be seen distinctly, would be found a well-made, plump, easy-going young fellow, with a weak but healthy and attractive face, and fair hair. He is of the type that runs to stoutness after thirty, unless diet and exercise are carefully attended to. At present he is too fond of luxury and good living to leave any doubt that this pleasant fellow of twenty-five will be a gross, fleshy man at forty. He is dressed by a good Manchester tailor, and everything he has is of the best. He does not stint his father's money. He has been to the Manchester Grammar School and Manchester University, but he has not lost a characteristic Hindle-burr in his accent, though he speaks correctly as a rule. He does not ever speak effectively, so that his speech harmonizes with that of the other characters. This is important for though he has had a far better education than any of the other characters except Beatrice, he is essentially one of them, a Hindleman. He has no feeling that he is provincial, or that the provinces are not the principal asset of England. London he looks upon as a place where rich Lancashire men go for a spree, if they had not time to go to Monte Carlo or Paris. Manchester he looks upon as the centre or headquarters for Lancashire manufacturers, and therefore more important than London. But after all he thinks that Manchester is merely the office for Hindle and the other Lancashire towns, which are the actual source of wealth. Therefore Hindle, Blackburn, Bolton, Oldham, and the rest are far more important in his eyes than London or Manchester, and perhaps he is right. Anyhow, the feeling gives him sufficient assurance to stroll into the most fashionable hotels and restaurants, conscious that he can afford to pay for whatever he fancies, that he can behave himself, that he can treat the waiters with the confidence of an aristocrat born, and yet be patently a Lancashire man. He would never dream of trying to conceal the fact, nor indeed could he understand why anybody should wish to try and conceal such a thing. He is now slightly intoxicated, not seriously drunk, only what he would himself describe as a bit tight. He strikes another match, and lurches towards the gas, only to find that it is already lighted. He blows out the match and tries to turn up the gas. As he reaches up he knocks a small bronze vase off the end of the mantelpiece. It falls into the fire-irons with an appalling crash. Curse it! He turns up the gas and clumsily picks up and replaces the vase. He sees on the mantelpiece a couple of letters addressed to him. Where's that tray? Where the devil's that tray? He tears them open, stares at them, and crams them unread into his pocket. Then he gazes at the table, as if in search of something. He shakes his head and proceeds to look in the sideboard cupboard for food. He can find none, so he turns to the whisky and soda, and fills one of the empty glasses. This he puts on the mantelpiece, and then he sits in the armchair by the hearth, sinks back and holds his head in his hands. He seems to be going to sleep. In the hall is observed a flickering light, coming nearer by degrees. 
Old Nathaniel Jeffcoat appears, a lean, picturesque figure in pyjamas and dressing gown, carrying in one hand a lighted bedroom candle and in the other a poker. He comes to the door of the room, stands at the threshold and contemplates his son. At length, Alan seems to feel that he is not alone, for he slowly steals a glance round to the door and encounters his father's stern gaze. Hello. He smiles amiably. Thought you were in bed. So it's you, is it? What you making all this din about? It's not my fault. You don't suppose I did it on purpose, do you? I'll not have you coming in and raising Cain at this time of night. It's enough to waken the dead. I can't help it. They go and stick that beastly thing up there. He points to the vase. Can't blame me for knocking it over. It's not my fault. Oop. I can't help it. Are you drunk? Alan, rising and standing with his back to the half in a dignified way. You've never seen me drunk yet. Jeffcoat approaches him and scrutinises him by the light of the candle. I've never seen thee near a drunk anyhow. Thou didn't drive the car home in this state, surely. No fear. Where have you left it? At George and Dragon in Hindle. I see. You've been at George and Dragon. Didn't they chuck you out at eleven? Aye, then we went round to the Liberal Club. Who's we? Me and George Ramsbottom. Has George Bramsbottom been with you this weekend? No, I met him at the Midland at Manchester. We had a bit of dinner together. Ah, where's George Ramsbottom been during the weekend? After his own devices. Oh, like the self, no doubt. Happen? What's thou been up to these wakes? Nothing. Why? Has been with a girl. Jeffcoat, holding the candle up to Alan's face. No. Thou hardened young liar. Why? Jeffcoat, looking hard at him. Chris Hawthorne's been here tonight. Chris Hawthorne? Aye. Alan cannot bear his father's gaze. He is not able to keep up the pretense of coolness any longer. He turns towards the armchair and stumbles into it, his attitude of collapse denoting surrender. Thou cursed young fool! I could find it in my heart to take a strap to thee, so I could. Why had another sense to pay for thy pleasures instead of getting mixed up with a straight girl? I've never kept thee short of brass, and if I must have a straight girl, thou might have kept off one from the mill, let alone a father's one of my oldest friends. What does he say? Say? What dost thou think he said? Dost thou think as he come up here to return thanks? But, 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 how did he know? The lass has told him, so it appears. She promised not to. Happen she did. And what then? What's going to be done? I said I'd see him treated right. What'll they take? I said I'd see them treated right. If thou expects I'm going to square it with a cheque, and that thou's going to slip away scot-free, thou's sadly mistaken. What do you want me to do? I know what thou's going to do. Thou's going to wed the lass. What do you say? Thou's heard me all right. Wed her? Fanny Hawthorne? Aye, Fanny Hawthorne. But I cannot. Why not? You know, Beatrice, I can't. Thou mun tell Beatrice it's off. How can I do that? That's thy lookout. Alan, rising and holding on to the mantelpiece. Look here, I, I can't do it. It isn't fair to Beatrice. 
"'It's a pity thou didn't think of that before thou went to land, Dudno.' "'But what can I tell her?' "'Thou mun tell her the truth if thou can't find out better to say.' "'The truth!' Alan again collapses in the chair. "'What's done is done. We've got to stand by it.' "'Father, I don't want to wed Fanny. I want to wed Beatrice.' "'Dost thou love Beatrice?' "'Yes.' "'I'm glad of it. It's right that thou should suffer as well as her.' Alan is overcome, and drops into dialect as he pleads. "'Father, thou'll not make me do it. Thou'll not make me do it. I cannot. I'll have all the folk in Indle laughing at me.' Alan breaks down, excitement and drink combined being too much for him. "'Come now, pull thyself together. Ay, it's easy talking that road. Thou'rt a man now, not a kid. It's me that's got to go through it. It doesn't hurt thee if I wed Fanny O'Thorne. Does it not? No.' "'So thou thinks it's easy for me to see thee wed Fanny Hawthorne? "'Harken, dost know how I began life? "'Dost know that I started as a tenter in Wormsley's shed "'when I were eight years of age, "'and that when the time comes I shall leave the biggest fortune "'ever made in the cotton trade in Indle? "'Dost know what my thought has been when labouring these thirty years "'to get all that brass together? "'Not what pleasure I could get out of spending, "'but what power and influence I were piling up the while?' I was set on founding a great firm that would be famous not only all over Lancashire, but all over the world, like Oryx's or Calvert's or Ormby's of Blackburn. Dost think as I weren't right glad when thou goes and gets engaged to Tim Farrer's lass? Tim Farrer as were mayor of Hindle and got knighted when the king came to open the new town hall? Tim Farrer that owns Lane End Shed, next biggest place to Daisy Bank in Hindle? Why, it were the dearest wish of my heart to see thee wed Tim Farrer's lass, and happen to see thee running both mills afore I died. And now what falls out? Lad as I'd look to keep on the tradition, and build a business bigger still, goes and weds one of my own weavers. Dost think that's no disappointment to me? Harken, I'd put down ten thousand quid if thou could honestly wed Beatrice Farrer. But thou can't honestly wed her. Not if I put down a million. There's only one lass thou can honestly wed now, and that's Fanny Hawthorne. And by God, I'm going to see that thou does it. Jeffcoat stalks out of the room, with his candle and his poker, which he has never put down, and Alan remains huddled up and motionless in a corner of the armchair. The curtain falls. End of part two.